your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Galatians. It's about seven-eighths of the way through the Bible. It's one of the little epistles or letters of the Apostle Paul, and we are taking our time to study through this marvelous book of the Bible. If you don't have your Bible, you can find the text printed on the back of your sermon outline. And we come to verse 11 in chapter 2. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. And we come to a great moment of drama. This is a soap opera. This is better than reality TV. Let me tell you what's going on before I read it. Peter and Paul get into an argument at a church dinner. And everyone is watching. We read, But when Cephas, that's Peter, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So far the reading of God's word. Peter did something wrong, apparently, and Paul makes a scene about it. Was it really necessary? How do you feel when you're at a dinner party and two people get into an argument? How do you feel? You feel sort of awkward, don't you? Was it necessary to make such a scene, as Paul said, before them all? You know, the Bible teaches us very clearly in Romans 14 that there are things that Christians disagree about. Romans 14, it talks about disputable matters, things of secondary importance. For example, can a Christian use credit cards? Some people say yes, some people say no. 
Can a Christian go to a PG-13 movie? Some people say yes, some people say no. When you celebrate communion, should you use wine or grape juice? People are hotly divided on the question. But these, we are taught in the Bible, these are secondary matters, and there is Christian liberty on so many issues. Now, Paul, why did you get so exercised at that potluck dinner at the church in Antioch? Why did you make such a scene? And the answer is that the apostle understands correctly that the very gospel of Jesus Christ and the future of the church was at stake. And he could not stay silent. He cared enough about the gospel. He cared enough about the church. He cared enough about Peter to confront. And the natural question for you and for me also is, do you, do you care enough to stand up when the gospel is at stake? Let's see if we can get a picture of what's going on here. You recall from our studies these past weeks that Peter and Paul were allies. They were colleagues in ministry, and they were both thrilled to see the gospel spread to Jews who became Christians and Gentiles who became Christians, and they were just absolutely delighted, and they encouraged each other. They gave each other the right hand of fellowship. And it was wonderful, especially in Antioch. And Peter himself is delighting in his new Gentile brothers and sisters. And when they had a meal together, it might have been the Lord's Supper, or it just might have been bagels and coffee after the worship service downstairs. We're not exactly sure which it is. Peter relished it. He loved it. It says he was eating with the Gentiles. And isn't it great when we are together and we are making new friends and there's new believers added to our company here in this church and we get to meet them after church and we get to hear each other's stories and, and we pray for each other and we delight in each other. You know, that's one of the great things about being a Christian is that God weaves in the body of Christ a tapestry of different lives, right? You might never normally meet with the person who's sitting three rows behind you here on a Sunday morning, but because you're in the body of Christ, your life intersects and you are family. Something happens, and apparently tension arose inside the church. Ethnic tension. Cultural tension. Tension. Their backgrounds were different, their skin color might have been different, and certainly their religious history was different. The Jews had their way, following in the traditions of their fathers, and these Gentiles, who were obviously pagans, did not. And there was tension, and as you know, old ways die hard, right? And the Jewish people are still wrestling. Do we have to keep kosher? Can't go to the pig roast. 
shouldn't they be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses? We do these things. This is righteousness for us. And they are unrighteous. Don't they care about God? And then we're told in verse 12 that apparently some of the disciples in Jerusalem who were friends with James, I'm not sure that James was a member of the circumcision party, but a bunch of disciples who apparently loved the traditions of the fathers and the laws of Moses come from Jerusalem to check out what's happening at the church in Antioch, okay? They arrive, and you know what they see? The great apostle Peter. sitting at table and eating with Gentiles. And they don't like it one bit. Has he no respect for the laws of Moses, the traditions of our fathers? Peter sees them looking at him, and they raise the eyebrow. And the sour puss on their face says it all. They do not approve. And you know what happened? Peter is intimidated. Peter feels the pressure and he caves. He responds and he takes his plate, picks up his plate, and he goes to the table where the Jews are sitting. Listen, listen, have you ever felt how intimidating the opinions of other people can be in your life? You teenagers in your church, in your school, you know what it's like when you stand up for Christ in your school and your teacher doesn't like it, or maybe your colleague at work, and and there's a lot of pressure, and it can be very intimidating to be identified as a Christian out there in the world. But you don't expect it in the church, do you? You expect the church to embrace and to welcome and to love on you. And instead, what do they find? What do people often find? Disapproval. The raised eyebrow. The judging spirit. Peter is intimidated. What did this say? The Apostle Paul sees all this, and suddenly it's as though the light goes on, and he says, wait a minute, this is not in step with the gospel. This is not the good news of Jesus Christ that we've been preaching, that Peter's been preaching, that I've been preaching, and he cares enough about the gospel. He cares enough about the church He actually cares enough about Peter to stand up and speak. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, remember he's been eating with them happily, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so he stands up and speaks. And I just want to ask you, this is simply uh, the challenge of point number one. 
Do you care enough to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't think we should fight about whether you use grape juice or wine in communion. I don't think we should fight about whether it's proper to wear sandals to church. But are you willing, are you caring enough to stand up and say, for this, I'll go to the wall. I'll make a scene at our Tuesday night men's group. We've been wrestling with this. It's been so interesting as this discussion. When do you actually stand up and reprove, exhort, correct in all righteousness? And when do you avoid controversies? And the guys, it's been this testosterone-filled room. It's been a really interesting discussion. And when do you go to the wall, that is, to the firing squad, for the gospel? I know from being your pastor and being a bad example myself. Some of us just love the argument. Some of us get the adrenaline rush from just being right. But that's not what's going on here. If you're that kind of person who just likes to win the argument, that's the way you're wired, you have to be careful. You have to guard your heart, don't you? You have to humble yourself before you start confronting other people. You have to take the log out of your own eye first, okay? That's a given. We don't want fights over foolish controversies at the North Shore Community Church. But the gospel, salvation by grace through faith, oh yes, let's agree. We will care enough to stand for Jesus and to stand with Jesus. Why is it so serious? This is point number two. It's so serious because the record in the text tells us that people are being led astray. And this really does matter. According to verse 13, it's having this bad effect. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. So Peter takes a stand, and Peter is charismatic, and Peter is a leader, and and so all the others who were like him They follow right along and separate from the Gentiles. And that's bad enough. But you know what he says next? And if you lived in that day, it would cause you to weep. He says, even Barnabas was led astray. Who was Barnabas? Do you know in the book of Acts? Barnabas is the encourager. You know who Barnabas is? He's the guy that when he walks in the room, everybody's just so glad he's there. You know people like that? They light up the room when they come in. When you have a conversation with Barnabas, you always leave that conversation feeling better. Do you know people like that? I love people like that. And Barnabas did have, apparently, a great charisma, and he was a great leader, and he was fearless in his faith, but he was the encourager. And now, Even Barnabas is being led astray. And Paul's heart aches. Listen, was it really such a big deal that Peter just wanted to hang out with his fellow Jews? I mean, we all have what's called the affinity principle. 
We like people who are like us. And that's not sinful. So something deeper was going on. John Stott, in his commentary, he writes that this is not merely about cliques forming in the church, as bad as that is. John Stott says, this is about something that lurks beneath the surface. The deeper issue is rising of what God requires for salvation. And this is something for which Paul cannot be silent as he watches people being led astray because people are like what animal? What animal does the Bible unflatteringly call us? Sheep, yes. We are like sheep. And when the trend starts, the trend picks up steam and people gather in, even confident Long Islanders. In fact, confident people are sometimes even more uh, susceptible to heresy because confident people, once they get the bad idea in their head, want to take their position and hold it strong, and they can lead other people astray. So it's not just those silly sheep over there, it's every one of us needs to be careful because we can all be led astray. This is just the way my grandmother taught me. This is the way my parents taught me. This is the way my college buddy taught me without any critical thought as to whether or not it's what the Bible teaches. Okay? We get led astray. And the church at Antioch became legalistic, adding to the gospel. Legalism. Legalism, it has been a poison in the church in every century, and it's even a danger today. It's so interesting, you know. There are, there are these controversies dividing people in the church. I, I, I'll say it again, grape juice or wine. Churches have split over it. Drums in the worship service. People have split over it. Pastor, did you see he came wearing sandals to church? And I, John Morkin, you know, Southern California boy, remembers when the Jesus movement took off in Southern California. He came out of a family from the conservative Baptist tradition, and here's all these long hairs flocking to churches. Remember that, John, don't you? you? You was one, weren't you? And the problem is that Christian people have these convictions that become additions. Did you hear that? People get these convictions that become additions to the gospel for what in their mind it means to be saved. And so today, there are controversies can a Christian use birth control? Can a Christian go to a PG-13 movie? What are the issues? King James Version only. And we take our personal preferences and we make them additions to the gospel and we are as guilty as the group from James that came from Jerusalem. 
and we look down our noses at those who are not like us, and they don't talk like we talk, and they don't vote like we vote, and they don't dress like we dress, and conduct themselves in certain ways. Oh, my friends, this is not a first century problem. You know, there's a new book coming out. I don't know if it's out yet, but I, I saw a, a DVD about a new book coming out entitled, You Lost Me. And it's, it's all these testimonies of young men and women in their 20s who were raised in the church, and now they want nothing to do with it. And it is a burden on our hearts. Why? Why? And at the top of the list, and whether this is fair or not, I mean, we could debate this, but at the top of the list, they would say, so many of them, my problem with the church is that the church is repressive. That's the word they used. The church is repressive. And that is to say that in their minds, again, maybe this is fair, maybe it's not fair, but in their minds, the church is all about what you may not do. At least that's the message they heard. The church is about what you're not allowed to do. Disapproval. And to the degree that that is true of us, it is enormously damaging. And my point here is simply this, when there's a proper love of righteousness, and if you know this church, we disciple each other to love what is good and to walk in the Lord's ways and to obey the ethics that, that, that are given to us in the New Testament so clearly, yet nonetheless, if what we communicate is that we're all about don't, we dishonor the gospel of Christ. Or as Paul says here, we are not in step with the gospel. Pastor Martin was not just blowing smoke last week when he said there are churches and even entire denominations that have gone astray and fallen off the rails who have abandoned purity of Christian doctrine or have abandoned uh, uh, the purity of Christian ethics. And they've gone astray. We just started our membership orientation class, and next, next week in the membership class, we're going to talk about the beauty of the purity and the peace of the church, two very high and noble concepts that we are committed to in our life. And what we want to assure is that the gospel we preach is pure, is clean, is faithful, is not obscured by all kinds of the ideas and traditions of men. That our doctrine is pure. And that our lives reflect it and, that, and, and our lives reflect that. But we want there to be the purity of the church. And then there is the commitment to the peace of the church. And Paul is about to burst a vein because he's seeing the church fractured and the church divided into these ethnic tensions. And he's beside himself. We are committed to North Shore Community Church. We agree with me? We are committed to the purity and the peace of the church. Let nothing come to deface or 
to fracture them so that we would be led astray, even Barnabas. was led astray. You, you know what, my friends? Some of you are in the military. And in the military, as you entered and were inducted, you took an oath. And what did you vow? You solemnly committed to defend the Constitution of the United States from all its enemies from without and where else? From within. Isn't that interesting? The soldier knows not only are there those who are hostile outside of America, but there are those from within who will be seditious. And we must stand against those even from within. Well, if that's true for our nation, you see, friends, that's also true from the church. And in fact, in fact, in the, over the centuries, the greatest harm done to the church has not been from the outside, from persecution on the outside, has it? Whenever the church is persecuted on the outside, what does she do? <laughs> she fasts, she prays, she weeps, she cries out to the Lord, she seeks the face of God, and she stands under the, under the hammer of persecution. But through the centuries, the greatest sabotage to the church has come from where? From those who pretended to be Christians who had pulpits. And if we had time, I would catalog for you the heresies that came into the church, the additions to the gospel, the, 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 the great problems that led so many astray. How susceptible are you to being led astray? We must all watch. You know Jude chapter 4. Jude the, uh, verse 4. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 4. He says, certain men have crept in unawares. You see, and they taught another gospel. So, now Paul moves to the heart of the problem. This is point number three. He moves to the heart of the problem. And what does he say? Verse 16. Look at it with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this one verse, along with Romans 3 and Romans 4 and, and Psalm 130 and Revelation 5, these these. These great passages all teach us the marvelous doctrine of justification by faith alone. But this one verse is a pillar, has been a pillar for the church through the centuries. Do you know it? You know, if you've got to pick ten verses to memorize, this might be a good one to memorize. Moms and dads, with your children, this might be a good verse to memorize. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Just take this apart. It falls apart right off the bone so beautifully. He just lays out the doctrine right there. Not justified by works, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. And he's teaching us here that your performance and my performance of good works is not enough to justify us. What is justification? Do you know what justification is? Justification is a legal term that's used in the court of law to describe the verdict that falls upon you. And when a person is justified, they are declared not guilty, acquitted, without penalty. And of course, in then the religious sense, this word means before the bar of God's justice, you are found not guilty, acquitted, free to go, accepted. That's to be justified, okay? Now, how are you justified? By your keeping of the law? By your good deeds? What does he say? You know, I look around this room and I know that there are people who are holier than I am. And my, I just treasure that about so many people who've walked with the Lord longer than I have, who have patterns of life and thought that is, you know, that's really sweet and that shines with the light of Christ. And I love that about you. And we all aspire to that. So, you know, you might be near the top of the mountain of good deeds. I might be halfway up, okay? But we are both still 93 million miles away from the sun. And Paul is teaching us here. Let no one stand and say, you know, yes, there, there are those bad people out there, but I'll go with my own spirituality because I'm a spiritual person. I'm quite spiritual. And I'm known in the community for my good deeds. And the church gave me an award for Sunday school attendance and put my name on the fellowship hall For by the works of the law will no one be justified. Then how will you be justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. And what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith is active and, and dynamic, yes, but faith here is the resting and the trusting and the receiving of Jesus. It is not simply saying, well, I believe Jesus lived and died and rose again. You know, like, I believe that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, okay, that's a fact. You believe Jesus died and rose from the dead, that's a fact. The book of James tells us so does the devil believe that. The devil believes that. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Faith. Faith. Now, I don't know Latin, but I do know a couple of words. You know, there's the word notitia. The word notitia means the fact. And you may have the fact before you, but that's not faith. The second word is a census. A census is assenting to the that the fact is true. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Yeah, I believe that. I give assent to that fact. But the third word is the word fiducia. And the word fiducia means trust. Trust. Rest. Receiving. Surrender. 
And I can tell you that I look at this stool, and I've done quite a study of it, and I believe this stool can hold my weight. I've done some physics. I understand force and mass moving against an, an object, and what will happen in it if I place my posterior on this stool, it will hold me, okay? I believe that. Do you believe I believe that? I believe it. I tell you I believe it. Do I believe it? And pretty soon my quadriceps start to burn. But I'm determined. I have to tell you I believe it. When do you know that I believe this stool will hold me? When I sit on it. When do I know that I believe in Jesus Christ? When I rest in him. When I stop looking to myself, my good works. When I surrender myself and my future to him. That's fiducia. That's faith. Okay? It says in John 1 verse 12, but to all who receive him. See, that's passive. That's to all who receive him, who believe in his name. He gives the right to become children of God. And then, you see, Paul makes it personal. It's not just getting the fact. He makes it personal. In the middle of the verse, he says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And this is beautiful. Because he doesn't say, so I have believed in Christ Jesus. He says, Peter, you and I, we believed in Jesus. Peter, both of us came to the place where we realized that our Jewish roots and our keeping of the gospel was not enough. Both of us. We know that we need Christ. See, the most pernicious example of this heresy that's out there today is this idea in many churches that there's a gap between you and God. The gap is caused by your sinfulness, right? Your sins have separated me from you, God says. But the church teaches, but Jesus came, and Jesus bridged the gap 95% of the way. 95% of the way. But that last 5%, well, that's up to you. But if you do your penance, and if you say your prayers, and if you give your nickels, and if you have your acts of contrition, and if you do your new obedience, then that last 5%, yes, that's what gets you over the finish line. And that, my friends, is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's a poison in the wider church. That's why he says at the end of verse 16, because by works of the law will no one be justified. And this is it. Psalm 130, one of the, one of the most precious psalms to me, verse 3, it says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And this is a rhetorical question. If God keeps a record of sins in this, who could stand? Anybody here? 
Say, if God keeps a record of sins, I, I will stand at the bar of justice. But verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And you know at the end of Psalm 130, verse 8, hundreds of years before Jesus came, he himself will deliver Israel from all her sins. And the prophecy comes that someone is coming. My sin is like kindling. Do you know what kindling is, you Boy Scouts here? What is kindling? It's that little frayed, dry, bristly wood that you put underneath the logs with plenty of oxygen that is ready to explode into flame. My sin is like kindling, and God's holiness is like a torch. And should that torch touch the kindling, it will be incinerated. I read a beautiful article this week by Mark Galley. He said, because of Jesus Christ, the kindling of my sin and the fire of God's holiness are kept apart. Why? Because of the cross. The cross where Jesus received the penalty that I deserved. This is justification by faith. Does this matter? Does this matter to you or to the church? Martin Luther was on trial at the Diet of Worms, it was called. And the Vatican had sent all its representatives to try him on heresy, for Luther was teaching this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And all of the lawyers surrounded him, and the theologians surrounded him, and they said to him, Luther, you must recant. Will you recant? You know what Luther said? Actually, he said, I need 24 hours to think about this. Because he knew his heresy meant the end for him. But he shows up and he says, to go against conscience and scripture is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. And through the centuries, people have gone to the wall have given their life to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about us? Don't we love him? Aren't we grateful that the kindling of our sin and the holiness of God's fire will not incinerate us because of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Maybe you're here today and you say, but you don't know how bad my sin is. You don't know what I've done. Peter denied Jesus. Paul murdered Christians. They both knew that their law-keeping was nothing. And oh, my friends, you, you, present yourself before the holy God through Jesus Christ, by faith, resting in him, and you will stand. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, how we thank you for Jesus, who did for us what we could never do. We thank you, Lord, for um, the fact that later on we read in the book of Acts that Peter learned his lesson. 
He learned his lesson and he spoke up for the gospel in Acts 15. After this confrontation, we salute your work in Peter. But Lord, more importantly, we ask you to do work in us now as we feed on Jesus, our Savior, as we confess our need for his shed blood, and as we acknowledge that his body, that he himself, the bread of life, is our nourishment, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.